you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you had a wonderful weekend, even with the rain off and on. And uh, looks like by this afternoon, most of our region should see some drying. But uh, we'll keep you updated, of course, with Suzanne throughout the morning. Austin coming up this afternoon. Nick Roman making sure that you have a safe drive home or to wherever you're you're heading. Next hour on Air Talk, we're going to be continuing with our series of candidates for the L.A. County District Attorney race. So we'll have uh, one of the 12 with us later today. But we begin with the strike that starts today at California State University campuses across the state. 23 campuses and uh, about 450,000 total students in the system. It's the largest state university system in the United States. And joining us to talk about what campus is like this morning at Cal State uh, Los Angeles, Julia Barajas joins us. Julia is our community colleges reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Julia, give us a sense of what's going on first thing today on day one of the five-day strike. Um, hi, good morning, Larry. So today's actually the first day of spring semester, and if you look around campus, it almost looks like uh, students are still on vacation. The campus is pretty empty. There are, I would say, a handful of students walking around that I've been able to chat with, um, but in front of the student union, the, um, the CSA is parked outside uh, where the picket line is, and there's about, I would say, maybe 60 members out in the rain uh, protesting on, on day one. I was wondering what kind of impact the rain might have on turnout for the picket lines, but you said about about 60 people are walking the line right now? I think at the moment, but it has been, I've been here since around 8 o'clock, and uh, little by little people keep trickling in. All right. Well, uh, before we get into the specifics of, of what the dispute entails, I'd like to hear from those of you associated with a CSU campus, whether you're a student, whether you're a faculty member, a librarian, whether you work in a classified position on the campus, and you'd like to weigh in on what you think this is going to have for the five days that are at least planned of this job action by the Cal State Faculty Union. Please give us a call. Let us know. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866 866- Nine three five seven two two. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location, your first name, and the CSU campus that you are associated with. So we want that third piece of information today as well, please. The, the campus you're associated with, as well as your first name and your location. But really important that we hear from you, particularly students, because so many are going to be affected 
affected by the cancellation of classes. And I want to hear what the mix is of classes that are canceled and whether you have any that are still scheduled for this week. Victoria in Pasadena said, I'm a CSU student. Most of my professors have canceled classes. I did have one professor who kept them, but I'm not sure why. I definitely support the strike. 866-893-5722. So, Julia, let's talk about what the faculty union is demanding for salary increases and what the district or what the system, I should say, has countered with. Um, yes, so the faculty, sorry, it's pretty windy, I apologize. Um, it's, uh, they're asking for a 12% increase um, in salary, but they're also asking for a number of other things that I think are worth pointing out very quickly. Um, one of them is that the lowest paid uh, faculty members um, that the salary for increases. They also want things like more mental health support for their students. Um, so it's, it's, it is salary increases, but it's a, it's a other important thing that's going to impact student quality of life and also student learning. Um, the system has countered with a 5% increase. Um, the way that they have described it, though, is a 5% increase to start off with and potentially a 15% increase over three, a three-year span, but that would depend on um, state budget negotiations between lawmakers and Governor Gavin Newsom or whoever the governor is. All right. Again, I'd love to hear from listeners associated with the CSU on any campus. We're at 866-893-5722. Students, if you've gone online to see which of your classes are scheduled and which not, we'd be interested in hearing what the impact is going to be on your classes. And maybe if you have classes that are scheduled, perhaps you're not going to go to show solidarity with faculty members who are striking. Maybe you are going to go because you feel like it's important your education you need to be in class either way I'd like to hear your decision making if you even have the option of going to class today or throughout the five days of the planned strike 866-893-5722 we've reached out to both the California Faculty Association and the Cal State Administration to invite them to join us but as of the time of going on the air this morning we have not heard from them the uh, system has said that it doesn't have the money to provide 12% increases uh, and that 5% per year, um, averaging uh, 5% a year over three years, is the best that they can do. Julia, the union has said that there are reserve accounts available, including $766 million CSU has in emergency reserves. So they're they're asking for money to come from that to pay for the salary increases they want? Um, that's something that we're still looking into on, to be honest, and um, here at um, the LAS education team, because that's the way that it's been described um, in some, with some sources. Um, but I've also spoken with some faculty members who said that they're not asking for the money to come from there because um, reserves are usually like a one-time thing, and they're asking for a recurring um, increase, obviously. So like that would not um, pan out. So that's something that we are still looking into, um, that we will have more information on here at LAS. All right. And one of the things that's always cited when you've got higher education work actions is the rise in the number of administrators. Has that... <coughs> Excuse me. I've got a little uh, tickle in my throat. Um, is Has that been one of the central arguments of the faculty association here, that there are all these administrators that have been added and their higher salaries, and that that's kept faculty from getting raises they think they deserve? 
Uh, one thing you'll definitely see if you look, um, you speak to people on campus or you look on social media, all over online, um, whether it's students or uh, faculty members um, that I've been looking at, um, what they talk about is, is exactly what you're describing, Larry, is that there are um, really well-paid, there's um, just people at the top who are administrators who are making, uh, you know, like six figures, um, some of them close to a million dollars a year. Um, while other people are struggling to make ends meet. So that's definitely part of the conversation. Um, but I did speak to someone earlier today, and I asked, like, well, you know, um, are you asking that they get paid less? And she was like, not necessarily. I think what needs to happen here is that everyone across the board who contributes to education, um, to make it a quality education, is to be, you know, just paid, like, living, like, decent wages. And a lot of these people, all the people who are on strike are people who are, who have PhDs or master's degrees, and they're in debt. They have student debt. They have families to feed all the things that, that we talk about whenever there are you know, labor, contract labor negotiations. All right. And again, I really want to hear from those of you associated with a Cal State campus. We have so many within our listening area here in Southern California. Cal State Fullerton, Dominguez Hills, Long Beach, Northridge, Los Angeles, San Bernardino. I want to hear from you and what you see as the impact of this on your campus. If you're a student, what have you learned about classes for this week? Are all canceled? Are any of them scheduled? What are your plans in terms of of attending classes, if any are even available to you, to attend over the course of the scheduled five days of the faculty strike? 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location, your first name, and the CSU campus that you are associated with. Julia, there was a deal that was reached um, right on the eve of, of the faculty job action, and that's with the Teamsters on campus. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, yeah, they were actually supposed to be, uh, uh, they were planning to uh, join the um, CSA um, strike, but since they reached their deal address before that, um, they um, are no longer going to be part of that, although some members are still planning to come out and support. All right, 866-893-5722. What's the discussion been about the potential impact on tuition for students if um, there is a larger increase in faculty compensation, Julia? Well, you know, the CSU just had a, a pretty huge um, student tuition increase. I, I I, think it's around 30-something percent, so please be, I uh, just want to be careful that I, I am not, uh, like, clearly starting to know that number right at the moment, but it's definitely around a 30 percent range. Um, so the, the CSA is not calling for uh, an increase in um you know, um, student tuition costs, are, they, they feel already that, they, actually, the CFA was opposed to that um, increase, I think something that we covered earlier. Um, but what I have heard from the CSU administrators is that if they were to, um, you know, agree to the terms that the CFA is um, asking for, that they would have to uh, scale back and make a lot of cuts, uh, possibly a lot of uh, layoffs across the board, um, you know, maybe have larger classrooms things like that. I assume, Ulia, that the reason they chose this timing is because it is the start of the term, so it would be less disruptive, the argument would go doing a five-day strike if it ran the full five days before the, the new classes even start. Has, has that been articulated as the reasoning? That's 
part of it, um, I think, you know, like this is actually not like the, the first time the CSA go on, goes on strike. Sorry, that the CSA goes on strike. Um, they actually staged a like, w- like one day strike uh, just like last December um, leading up to this. Um, and they feel that because there has been just like um, on, on in, in, um, because they haven't been able to reach an agreement, this was kind of like escalating it a bit more. So there were the one day strikes and now they're doing a week long strike. All right. Again, uh, just to reset, in case you just joined us, uh, California State University has offered a 5% pay raise effective January 31st. It would be 15% over three years of the contract with the California Faculty Association, and the Faculty Association is demanding a 12% hike uh, that it wants. According to CSU, um, that would... uh, be a cost of of uh, well over three hundred million dollars uh, annually to be able to to fund an increase. Three hundred eighty million dollars is what Leora Friedman, who's the vice chancellor for human resources of CSU, claims would be the cost of that, which she says the university system simply can't afford. Mario in Boyle Heights, good to have you with us. You're on Air Talk. How does this affect your family? Thank you for having me, Larry. Um, I'm the parent of two Cal State Los Angeles students and the spouse of a lecturer. So I'm you, very involved in. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so this this really hits home for you, yeah. And and so let's talk about your partner, who's who's a lecturer. What what's their experience with this? Oh, she's she's out there on the picket lines right now. We were there at 7 a.m. getting people pumped up. She's going to be there all day with her CFA compañeros. We're all in. All right. And and you said that you have um, a, a child who's a student. Which campus? I have two students at Cal State LA, young women. And they, everything I've learned about how much um, the administrators make and my intimate knowledge of how much tuition goes up every year and how little a lecturer makes, it's obvious it's a labor issue for education workers who serve students. I, I really feel that the small raise offered to settle does not meet anything, any kind of level that the numbers are coming out. Um, and this, after this uh, summer of labor and what the Teamsters were just awarded, I hope you cover that later. Um, you know, it's a time for the lecturers. Because what I'm also worried about, I work, I'm a therapist and I work with children in Boyle Heights and in South L.A., and I feel like this, that being a professor is too precarious a career now. They, they all need side hustles. They have second jobs. It's, 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 I worry that my kids or the kids I work with, uh, they won't feel like a professor is a career that it will support them or have a family. We, don't, we need more than saints. We don't need educators to be saints and, and, oh, serve the children and just be so amazing. We need workers who work in education in different fields. And I don't feel, I feel like the administration, they make so much money that the only incentive is to go get your master's in education and become an administrator, which is really horrible for our future in California. Mario, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing how three people in your family, two students and uh, your partner who's a lecturer, are affected by this. Uh, Bill in San Bernardino said, I work at Cal State San Bernardino. Administrators got a raise last year, but they're saying there's no money for faculty. Let's talk with Francisco in West Covina. I understand you're a grad student at Cal State L.A. Thank you for joining us. Uh, First of all, uh, have you learned whether you're going to be having any classes offered to you this week? Uh, Yes, uh, I'm 
uh, where classes are, are canceled, uh, I am 100% in support of the strike. I think the professors are uh, amazing at Cal State LA. I've had amazing professors, but I've already had a number of professors leave uh, Cal State LA because they just cannot make uh, ends meet. They get sometimes better offers somewhere else, um, and, or you know they just have you know left the profession because it's just it's just too difficult and it's heartbreaking. Uh, the, I've had amazing and amazing. Uh, time at Cal State LA, but it's, it's just very, very difficult. Yeah, and, and Francisco, just to clarify, have you checked whether any of your professors are uh, offering classes? I know you're a grad student. You may not have the you know, same number of classes. I, I am 100% in support of the strike, so I, I wouldn't You haven't even checked. Okay, all right. All right, Francisco, thank you so much. Kent, who is calling us from the picket line at Cal State Long Beach and is a faculty member there. Kent, thank you for being with us. Um, first of all, share with us what what uh, things are like there at Cal State Long Beach this morning. Uh, well, it's a little wet. Uh, rain's coming down. Um, I'm sort of protected in my uh, Long Beach mascot shark costume. Um, <laughs> the rain's still getting to me too, and uh, it's. Uh, but we've got a really good a really good turnout. Um, my corner, we're here on Seventh and. Um, East Campus Drive, and um, there's a whole lot of people. You can probably hear them in the background with drums and horns and um, a lot of people honking in support. It's your, really nice. Your your shark mascot outfit is very appropriate, given the wet weather that it is today. So were you trying to bring a festive mood to the to the job action today? Was that why you wore that? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, I knew it was raining when I was driving in, and so I felt like, all right, you know, hey, I've got a shark in the closet. Who doesn't, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> I'll put, might as well bring it. <laughs> so, so, Kent, this is a five-day action. Obviously, you're you're hoping that the demands of the union are met. But um, wh- how optimistic are you that there'll be some sort of a compromise reached in short order? You know, I'm optimistic. I mean, we'll have to wait and see. But, um, you know, we're we're fighting for faculty working conditions and, and really most of all students learning conditions. We want the, you know, we're here for the students. If we were here to be millionaires, well, we probably would be a different job. Yeah. But, yeah. um, so, you know, uh, uh, but I'm optimistic, you know, all right, Kent, I appreciate it. So good to hear from you on the picket line at Cal State Long Beach. And let's talk with Joaquin, who joins us from Rancho Palos Verdes, who is a student at Cal State Long Beach. Thank you very much, Joaquin, for joining us. So how do you see this affecting you? Joaquin, are you there? And I, I'm here. Can you hear me, Larry? Yeah, I can. I got you now. Go ahead. Awesome. Um, I'm a student, and I'm actually against the strike. Um, I believe... Joaquin, oh, I think we just lost his cell phone. If you get him back, put it, let's put him on. We're just trying to see if we can get him. Can you, you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Okay, got you now, Joaquin. Go ahead. So we heard you say you're against the strike. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm a student. It's my first year at Cal State Long Beach, and I'm ready to go to class. But thankfully enough, a lot of my teachers have been in communication with me, uh, emailing us this and what's going to be required for classes. And that's really nice. But I'm ready to go, man. You know, I 
Okay, and Joaquin, we lost you again, but thanks so much. We appreciate you sharing your perspective. Ken, a lecturer at Cal State Northridge, emailed us, said, I've canceled my classes for the week in support of the strike. I fully support the action. While I don't want her to be do not want to be pitted against administration. It's absolutely essential that we, the educators, without whom administration wouldn't even have jobs, be fairly compensated just as much as in the UC system. My position isn't guaranteed, and I technically lose my job after each 16-week semester. I wonder how many students and those in the general population know that. That's Ken, who is a CSUN lecturer, joining us. I want to thank you all for your input on day one of what is, according to the California Faculty Association, a scheduled five-day job action on what would be the first day of uh, the term at the Cal State University's all 23 campuses across the Golden State. My thanks to our reporter, Julia Barajas, for joining us from Cal State Los Angeles with giving us the details. You'll, of course, hear her coverage throughout the day and at LAist.com. Julia Barajas is Community College's reporter for LAist. Coming up, the history of the California grizzly, which I didn't realize was a comparatively recent arrival and, of course, is now gone from California. We'll talk about the history of the majestic grizzly when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us today as we turn our attention on our Monday Southern California history segment to the California Grizzly, which has been um, described as a subspecies of the grizzly. We'll get into that in a moment. But of course, even though there are no more grizzly bears within the Golden State, it's our state symbol on our state flag. And I read a fascinating Los Angeles Times story about a study from Peter Alagona, who's a historian and ecologist and UC Santa Barbara professor of environmental studies. Uh, He's facilitator and founder of the California Grizzly Research Network, and he wrote about uh, some myths that have arisen about the nature of uh, the dearly departed California grizzly. Uh, Professor Alagona, Thank you for joining us. Hi, Larry. It's great to be back with you. Uh, Let's start with the fact that grizzlies are comparatively recent arrivals. I didn't realize that. We're talking, what, only 8,000 years ago? 
Well, Larry, there are a lot of things that I didn't realize when I first started this project. So you're you're not alone. And I have to say that this journey since 2016, when we started our work here at Santa Barbara, has been um, both humbling and uh, enlightening. You know, this is uh, you know what you're talking about now is just one of many things uh, that I was wrong about too when I started. I was wrong about when they arrived. I was wrong about where grizzlies lived in California. I was wrong about how they related with native people, how big they were, what they ate, why they disappeared, even their name. And the things that I was most wrong about was why they went extinct and whether or not they could ever be be brought back. So, so yes, you're right that although black bears have probably been in California for something close to um, a million years based on the fossil record, the oldest uh, California grizzly fossil that we've been able to identify here in the state is only about 8,000 years old. So a remarkably recent arrival, at least in uh, geologic and evolutionary time. So the the theory is that they might have come here as opportunists because of the extinction of like saber-toothed tigers and these, these mega predators, which opened up a space for grizzlies? Well, you know, grizzlies did live with those other uh, animals, those big Pleistocene carnivores like dire wolves and saber-toothed cats and giant short-faced bears in other parts of North America. But uh, the the disappearance of those animals that you would see like in the La Brea Tar Pits collections uh, here in California may have created an open niche for the grizzly bear to arrive, probably well after the arrival of people in California and then to colonize the state very widely and really thrive once they got there, even though they arrived here pretty late. Do we have any sense from the fossil record where they would have come from, from the north, from uh, the Sierras, uh, out, you know, uh, across the state line? Do we know where they would have made the journey from? Well, here's something uh, kind of amazing is that when we carbon dated these fossils, we were very surprised that they were so uh, recent, but we have forthcoming uh, research right now, not published yet, but hopefully coming out this year, out of Beth Shapiro's paleogenomics lab at UC Santa Cruz, that is essentially going to show that California grizzlies, although have, they have long been considered a unique subspecies of brown bear, uh, they are genetically indistinguishable from grizzlies that currently live today in places like Yellowstone. So the fact that they are almost the same exact bear or the same exact bear that you can see today in places like Montana and Wyoming matches up pretty well with the idea that they arrived here really recently, because if they migrated from those uh, places further north, then you would expect them to be still pretty much the same bear since it's been such a recent migration. Farmers, ranchers, mountain folks would be very unhappy me raising this issue, but that then (laughs) makes it possible that you could relocate grizzlies from those other locations to uh, rural um, parts of of California. Um, If one was to do that, where would they be most likely to thrive? Well, you know, Larry, let me just try to clarify why they disappeared in the first place, you know, for a long time, folks have said that the reason grizzlies disappeared from places like California is that they were essentially just squeezed out, you know, when, uh, you know, as the population, the human population of California grew to nearly 40 million people, uh, bears just lost their habitats. They were certainly persecuted as well. But really what I've been um, focusing on is, is a much broader story. And it kind of goes something, something like this. What eliminated the California grizzly wasn't really just habitat loss or overhunting. It was a much larger campaign 
that was carried out really by, you know, largely by white male English speaking settlers to essentially eliminate every single thing about native California that could not be controlled or commodified. Plants, animals, you know, forests raised, rivers dammed, lakes drained, fires quashed, and of course the, the really murderous um, annihilation of native people. And so the California grizzly didn't disappear from California just because of habitat loss. It got caught up in really a genocidal campaign of annihilation that sought to really um, uh, control everything about the state and commodify it for a relatively small group of, of folks. Now you might say, okay, well, that's that was a long time ago and that history is is not terribly relevant uh, for, for today in terms of question like uh, reintroduction. But I think that for the answer to that, we need to actually look outside the boundaries of the US to places like uh, Europe. Believe it or not, there are something like uh, 25,000 brown bears, the same species that we call grizzly bears here, living in Europe in 22 countries. They live in Italy, they live in Spain, they live in Greece, they live in Slovenia and Bulgaria and Finland, uh, really all over the continent. Europe is a place with a lot more people and no wilderness areas. And so there, uh, the bears have to occupy shared spaces with people. And so a big part of this project for me has been to try to understand not only why grizzly bears went extinct in California, but how we can move to a situation here where we're sharing space with wildlife in a way that actually allows more species, not just humans and not just cows, but more species to thrive. We're talking with UC Santa Barbara Professor of Environmental Studies, Peter Alagona. He's a historian and ecologist, and he founded and facilitates the California Grizzly Research Network. We're talking with him about uh, the nature of the California grizzly bear, which, as we've heard, is not distinct as a species from grizzlies in the rest of the United States. So, Peter, what what would the advantage be from an environmental perspective of reintroducing the grizzly? Why would, why would you even consider that um, as a potential benefit? I think that there are potentially a number of benefits that could come with this at relatively low, uh, at quite low risk, actually, if people are just willing to invest in the coexistence measures that we know work for uh, grizzly bears in other places and, and also black bears uh, in California in places where they have been uh, implemented. But grizzly bears do a lot of things in the environment that are just amazing and accumulate over time. They till the soil, uh, they spread seeds, they spread nutrients, they clean up uh, uh, carcasses, they take dead, uh, uh, or sorry, they take, um, uh, sick or old animals uh, out of populations. Uh, they, they do so many different things in the environment that these cumulative effects of them really build up over time and really create much more uh, resilient ecosystems. What but about, you know what? Oh, go ahead. Are, if, oh, yeah, sure. If I could, there are other reasons too. I mean, there's an environmental justice question around this. Uh, there are, there are uh, questions about what could be done for grizzlies that would help other wildlife. And then finally, Larry, I just want to say that, um, you know, I think a lot of us have this idea, kind of maybe implicit idea that if you don't have a job, you know, <laughs> then maybe uh, something about your life is, is is not worth living. You know, I mean, there's this kind of idea built into American society about that. And I just think that these animals, in addition to all the amazing things they do in the ecosystem, also have an intrinsic value all their own that we should be thinking about and considering 
as we imagine uh, a different kind of future. Uh, well, I'm just thinking as a practical matter, if uh, if you're going to try and make the the um, the appeal to people who would be most affected by this, you'd have to quantify some kind of a benefit beyond just it, it would be nice to, to have the uh, reintroduction of grizzlies. But I did want to ask you about what what this would mean in terms of safety, because we do, of course, have attacks of grizzlies on humans. Um, people surprising grizzlies even on trails in in national parks. Um, so if you're going to have grizzlies in California, um, what are the potential risks to humans from encounters? Well, I do want to say, Larry, that this is the the uh, 100th anniversary of the last credible sighting of a grizzly in California. That was in 1924. Now we're in uh, 2024. And I think that this is a great opportunity just to really begin this conversation. I don't think folks out there should be thinking that, oh my gosh, I'm going to go out hiking in the Angeles forest and see a grizzly. No, that's not going to happen any uh, any time in the in the near future. So there's nothing to to uh, be worried about or concerned about there. However, I, I do want to just um, point out that, you know, if we learned one thing from from COVID, it's that folks really have a hard time um, judging risk. Right? It's a very complicated thing, and I think that the same thing goes for for wildlife. If you look uh, today, continent wide throughout North America, annually, there are an average of about, about 1.5 human deaths yearly associated with everything having to do with a bear, 1.5. And so you can compare this to like 130 Americans, unfortunately, die from falling off stepladders a year. Um, the, the number of people who have died in places like Yellowstone uh, from bear conflicts is roughly the same as the number who've died from lightning strikes and murders. Um, and so the risks are actually um, extraordinarily low, but we need to do everything we can to keep them as low as possible so that people can receive the benefits uh, and the amazing experiences of being able to live with these animals at the lowest possible risk. Professor, so would, yeah, I'm so oh, yeah. sorry. I need to I need to bring our conversation to a close, but it's such a pleasure again to talk with you. I appreciate it. You make such a, a strong case for the grizzly. And of course, it's so good to know that this symbol of the state of, of California was, was a creature that coexisted with humans and with indigenous Californians before the arrival of, of Europeans and, and the creation of the conflict with the species. Professor, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Larry. It was a pleasure. I could talk about this all day. I know, I know. And be interesting about it all day as well. <laughs> UCSB, Professor of Environmental Studies, Peter Alagona. He's the founder and facilitator of the California Grizzly Research Network on our Southern California History segment. Coming up, we'll be talking about migraines and severe headaches what sorts of treatment options have emerged in recent years? If you have questions for our expert guest about migraines or severe headaches, we're at 866-893-5722. We'll be back in 90 seconds. 
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. We have some good news for Inland Empire residents. The National Weather Service's flood advisory has just expired for the southern portions of the Inland Empire and the coastal slopes of the San Bernardino and Riverside Mountains. Again, that flood advisory has expired as the heavy rain has ended. Areas of light to moderate showers are continuing in the Inland Empire. Coming up next hour, we're going to be talking about Kern County looking at carbon capture as a method of being able to um, take advantage of the oil wells that are there, all the storage underground where they could put liquid CO2 that's removed from the environment and also create jobs and have a clean way of, of, of sort of repurposing those fields. But a lot of residents have great concern about it. We'll talk about that next hour on Air Talk. We're going to turn our attention now to migraines and extreme headaches. And I'd like to hear from you. If you're someone who's been a chronic headache sufferer, um, if you have a specific question about types of treatment that are available or even the way that diagnosis is made, we're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us your question at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and your first name. We're just working to reestablish contact with our expert guest. We just lost our connection with him, and we will get back on with us Dr. Richard Lipton, who's professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and director of the Montefiore Headache Center in the Bronx. And we have him now. Dr. Lipton, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Let's begin with um, what the definition of a migraine is, because I think it's colloquially used to mean a severe headache, but are all severe headaches migraines? No, all severe headaches are not migraine. Migraine is headache plus other symptoms, and the symptoms that come along with headache and migraine include various combinations of nausea, sensitivity to light, sensitivity to sound, disability, and sometimes focal neurologic symptoms that are referred to as auras. And and the auras are something distinct to migraine headaches? So, well, there are 
two main types of migraine. One is called migraine with aura, and those are the people who get the auras. The other is cleverly named migraine without aura. And for most people with migraine, the auras are visual, so they consist of things, zigzag lines or spots of light, often accompanied by a graying out of vision that may grow to encompass half the visual world or all of the visual world. And auras are actually quite scary. So although many people with migraine don't go to the doctor, when people have these dramatic visual events, that usually mobilizes them to seek medical care. And what uh, what are the, the best ways of diagnosing the type of headache that a patient is suffering? Right. Well, so, you know, the big cut in the headache world is between primary headaches, where the headache disorder is the problem, and secondary headaches, which are attributable to some underlying issue. And when there are secondary headaches, most often the underlying conditions are relatively benign, like the flu, a hangover, a cold, a minor head injury. Um, and then among what are called the primary headaches, where there isn't an underlying cause, the major categories are migraine, tension-type headache, and cluster headache. And diagnosis really depends on the symptoms that a sufferer experiences and not really diagnostic testing. The secondary headaches are either diagnosed or excluded using diagnostic testing, and the primary headaches are primarily assessed by talking to people and hearing about their experience. What appear to be the causes for migraines? Right. Well, we know that migraine is in part a genetic disorder. Many people with migraine have a close relative with migraine. There's been a tremendous amount of work on migraine genetics, and we now know about more than 40 genes that contribute to migraine. But above and beyond that, not everybody at genetic risk gets migraine, and we know in Environmental factors can play a role in expression of migraine as well. And we know that women are at greater risk for migraine than men. We know that the condition usually begins in the teenage years or in early adult life. We know that migraine attacks in people with a vulnerability can be triggered by head injury, that migraine is more common in people who have other pain disorders, that migraine is more common in people who have asthma and obesity and a variety of other disorders. So migraine is what is called a complex disorder, meaning that there are multiple genetic and environmental factors that converge to determine if a particular individual gets migraine or not. We're talking with Dr. Robert Lipton, professor of neurology, Albert Einstein College of Medicine.
Wilson and director of the Montefiore Headache Center in the Bronx. We'll continue with Dr. Lipton in just one minute. We're at 866-893-5722. Email address atcomments at las.com. Back in one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. We're talking with neurologist uh, Dr. Richard Lipton. He's professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Lipton, what are some of the most promising uh, either newer treatments that have already received approval or ones that are in clinical trials? Sure. So this has been a fantastic five-year period for migraine um, we've known for a long time that there is a brain chemical called calcitonin gene-related peptide, or CGRP, which nerve cells use to talk to each other. And we've known for a long time that CGRP levels are elevated in people with migraine. They go up during attacks. If we inject people with CGRP, that actually triggers a migraine. And over the last five years, five new drugs have received FDA approval that act one way or another by blocking blocking CGRP. So some of the drugs are used as preventive agents, which means that people use them whether or not they're having a migraine attack to keep them from coming on. Four of those drugs that are used preventatively are injectable monoclonal antibodies where essentially you need an injection that you can take at home with an auto injector that's kind of like an EpiPen and you could take those injections either every four weeks or every 12 weeks, depending on the drug. And then there are four new oral agents as well, um, two of which are approved as preventive agents and three of which are approved as acute treatments. And the reason that doesn't add up to four is that one of them is approved as both an acute and as a and as a preventive agent. And these drugs broadly have been very effective and have produced very few side effects and honestly have made my job much easier and made the lives of millions of people with migraine much better. So it's a very exciting time. Dr. Lipton, uh, for for uh, people who are prone to get migraines, are, are there often environmental factors which can uh, precede the symptoms of migraine, or, or is the timing of when those attacks occur um, much more you know, difficult to understand what the trigger would be? Yeah, so there's a distinction that may be worth making between trigger factors and premonitory features, and both of them are important in terms of helping people deal with their illness. So a trigger factor, if you're exposed to it, increases the probability of you're getting a migraine attack, given that you have the disease, over a relatively brief period, say a few hours to a day or two. So for example, 
drinking alcohol is a trigger for many people, particularly red wine. And someone, you know, there I regularly see people who have headaches Saturday morning. And, you know, one of the reasons that happens is because they go out drinking Friday night at the end of the week. So that's a trigger factor, an external factor that initiates an attack. Migraine attacks also have warning symptoms that are called premonitory features. And those are changes in mood, changes in behavior, often irritability that precedes the onset of headache pain. Now, the reason trigger factors are important is that many trigger factors are avoidable. So some people can improve their control of migraine by avoiding trigger factors like not going for that drink on Friday night or not missing meals or not getting sleep deprived. And it's important to say that trigger factors vary from person to person. So if something triggers my migraine, but not yours, I should avoid it, but you don't need to. Mm. And so in terms of identifying triggers, it's important to uh, figure out what matters for you. And uh, is caffeine often uh, a contributor? Yeah, so caffeine is a fascinating two-edged sword. (laughs) On the one hand, caffeine is included in many products that are used to treat migraine, including Excedrin migraine, which is available over the counter, including prescription drugs like Fiorinol and Fioracet. So caffeine makes pain relievers work more effectively and is used for treatment. On the other hand, too much caffeine and caffeine withdrawal can trigger a headache. So in addition to drinking on Friday night, the other common cause of that Saturday morning headache is caffeine withdrawal. If you get up every morning and have a cup of coffee or two, and then you sleep through your coffee on Saturday morning, that can be a trigger factor for your headache. So the best advice with caffeine is um, use it moderately when you don't have a headache and use it therapeutically when you get a headache. Uh, We have a question from Tamar. What is uh, the latest research about a potential link between long COVID and migraines? Well, so there's no question that getting an acute COVID infection in people with migraine often makes their headache worse. Inflammation plays a critical role in migraine and the hallmark of COVID is that it produces a lot of inflammation in the body. Headache is also a regular feature in people who develop long COVID. In people who have migraine, the long COVID headaches often have migraine features and Either if they're very frequent, then preventive medications can be useful. If they're not so frequent, then um, then acute treatments can be useful. And that migraine molecule I was talking about, CGRP or calcitonin gene-related peptide, blocking that molecule actually has anti-inflammatory effects and is useful for migraine inside and outside the setting of COVID. 
short or long. We, we have only about 45 seconds left. Real quickly, Caroline in Santa Monica said, I started using a Cephaly device. It's reduced my migraines tremendously. Can you briefly describe what that is, doctor? Yeah, sure. So there are a number of neuromodulatory devices that are FDA approved, and that's part of the tremendous advance in migraine therapeutics. Cephaly is a form of TENS, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. You actually patch electrodes on your forehead immediately above your eyes, and um, electric current stimulates the nerves above the eye, the supraorbital nerve. And for many people, Cephaly has made a huge difference, and it can be used on a daily basis to prevent attacks, but also when you get an attack to relieve them. Dr. Richard Lipton, thank you so much, sir, for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Professor of Neurology, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Director of the uh, Montefiore Headache Center in the Bronx. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today. Got a busy hour. Coming up later, we'll talk about the theft of cacti and how that's such big business, not just in the American Southwest, but literally around the world. And a little bit later this hour, we'll talk with one of the candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. We've invited all of the candidates to join us, and we spend a few minutes with each of them, getting a sense of what their criminal justice priorities would be if they're elected as the DA. But we begin the hour with a look at Kern County and whether it might be a major home of carbon capture, storage of liquid CO2 in underground wells that have been used for the county. County's major oil production business. Kern is the biggest oil producing county in California. It's not just agriculture that's a big driver of the Kern County economy. But there are concerns about whether that kind of carbon capture using old oil fields and storage deep underground comes with some significant environmental problems of their own. Joining us is Joshua Yeager, whose uh, NPR member station KVPR Environment and Health Reporter. His recent piece uh, is titled California's Oil Country Faces an 
existential threat. Kern County is betting on the carbon removal industry to save it. Uh, the piece was co-reported with Emma uh, Feringer Merchant and Inside Climate News. Joshua, thank you very much. Good to have you with us this morning. Uh, so share with us what the hope is of this carbon capture technology in old um, underground uh, oil wells, what the hope is for what that could do economically for Kern County. Well, uh, economically, I mean, the um, the hope is that this new carbon capture industry will be a sort of replacement in some ways of the oil industry that has traditionally um, really been a, a source of a lot of accessible blue collar jobs for folks uh, here in Kern County. Um, Kern is uh, the top oil producer in California, but also in the top 10 nationally. And, and you know, it's a really big um, uh, industry here. And the state has said by 2045 that it intends to uh, cease all drilling uh, statewide. And, and that would really take a toll, uh, county leaders here say, on both the job base and uh, the tax base. And its other key industry, agriculture, is also facing some challenges at the moment uh, because of uh, groundwater laws and other um, uh, issues. Sort of both sides of climate, isn't it? You've got the oil industry that's threatened in Kern County because of efforts to curtail CO2 emissions. And on the other side, agriculture that's being hit by the effects of CO2 emissions with the warming climate and the wild weather swings of California. So so Kern's getting it uh, hit hard both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you could say it's it's kind of a, a ground zero for for uh, for climate change here, and 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 just as you described, because of the impacts to agriculture and and farm workers here, but also to um, efforts to try to to reverse it and try to um, uh, to try to uh, improve the situation in terms of what's happening to. Um, the oil industry here. And I was uh, reading, so, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, no, no, but ahead. I was just reading in your piece that there are more than 16,000 oil industry employees in Kern County. Big, big employment. Yeah, there's about 16,000 jobs here and and a lot of the county's discretionary fund, and that's the money they use to pay for, uh, for deputies, for uh, firefighters, you know, all the essential services that, that a county kind of has to pay for. Um, a lot of that money comes from uh, the oil industry. And when those, if those, if that industry goes away and, and some of these jobs are lost, uh, that could have a big toll on, on the, on the local economy here. And so the county, it's really an all hands deck, all hands on deck situation. Um, leaders here tell me to, uh, to really try to kickstart this carbon capture, uh, industry because the state has also said that, um, it intends to store, uh, about a hundred million tons of, climate warming carbon dioxide underground in these wells that you uh, described. And, um, you know, for people who, who may not be as familiar with the, uh, with the technology here, I mean, it's, it, it can sound really complicated, but it's, it's actually quite simple in some ways. I mean, uh, you know, companies are, are digging wells about 6,000 feet deep, deep underground, and um, they're just, they're shooting liquefied carbon uh, deep down there. And it, it's kind of the, uh, the opposite of, um, extracting oil, you might say. It's it's that in reverse. Um, so it, it, there's a lot of efforts to try and get, to get that industry off the ground here. 
And uh, but there's also a lot of challenges. We're talking with Joshua Yeager, who's NPR member station KVPR's environment and health reporter covering Kern County. We're talking about a, a piece that he's uh, generated looking at the potential for capturing CO2 emissions, putting liquefied CO2 underground, very deep underground, uh, from wells where oil has been extracted. The idea being that this could be a big revenue generator, that it would have positive positive environmental effects, but not all residents are sold on on what that would mean for the infrastructure required to do this and and what sort of potential health threats there might be from from performing the carbon capture in Kern County. Joining us is Michael Wara, Director of the Climate and Energy Policy at Stanford University. Michael, so good to have you with us. First of all, your your thoughts on what piece this kind of um, capture and storage of CO2 plays in addressing CO2 emissions generally? Well, I think it's clear that if we're going to achieve, you know, the kinds of reductions contemplated in the Paris Agreement, you know, one and a half degrees, we need to really be experimenting with new technologies that that could help us achieve that goal. Um, and CCS, car, you know, carbon capture and storage, like is the, the storage part is really what's been proposed in Kern County so far, is a part of that. You know, and, and I think we need to investigate it and, and be careful in terms of how we engage with the technology, but but also try to learn as much as we can. And and there's been a lot of interest on the part of the industry, the oil industry in Kern, in trying to be a part of that learning. And so, you know, I, I think there's there's a there's a there's an important um, potential role that CCS might play, but the technology is not yet really proven um, for not so much the storage part of that, and, and I want to be careful there, but how we're going to actually capture and then transport carbon dioxide to the places where it can be stored, I think is is still something that we're learning a lot about and the and and whether it can be done at a reasonable cost i think is a very important question and whether it can be done reliably is the second very important question when you and say so these, reliably do you mean without the threat of leaks or or um environmental damage that might be caused by the process of injecting it into the ground well i think there's a number of concerns that different stakeholders have raised one is, can the capture actually occur reliably so that the ben- the environmental benefit that's promised by these technologies is reduced greenhouse gas emissions or potentially removal of CO2 from the atmosphere and then injection into the ground, kind of reversing what we did when we burned fossil fuels. And there are lots of sort of pilots that have been tried over the years Um Mostly, they haven't been terribly successful, either at meeting cost or, you know, time timeliness targets, you know, de- delivering and executing on time on budget has been a very big challenge for carbon capture and storage. And so, you know, this is an experiment in California to see if we can do it better. Certainly, there's been a lot of learning in the industry about how to do this better, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to hit these targets that they really need to achieve in order to play an important role. Um, the other concern is on the transportation and storage side, you know, there has been, there was a pipeline rupture in Mississippi of a CO2 pipeline, not dissimilar to the ones that are proposed for Kern. 
it was in a populated area and it it was a significant emergency when it occurred because CO2 you know stays close to the ground and can asphyxiate people if they're if they live next to a pipeline that ruptures it's not my understanding that at least the projects proposed in Kern are near populated areas yet but that could happen if this industry grows another concern that some have expressed is around leakage that we poked so many holes in the ground in particularly in the oil fields of California that are not capped and and maybe the CO2 will leak um, and then a, a third concern, um, uh, well, it, it relates to the potential of in, what's called induced seismicity. And that's where if you inject a lot of anything into the ground, you're kind of pressurizing the ground in essence, and that can lubricate dormant faults and cause earthquakes. And folks may have heard about this in the context of, of the hydraulic fracturing for yeah. in, in Oklahoma that caused earthquakes. But those are the, sort of the big concerns. There's also air quality issues, you know, continuing the kind of industrialized um, impacts that, that really harm air quality in, in Kern County. Uh, just a basic question. How is the carbon that's captured liquefied for transport? Well, it's, um, it's cooled. It's, first of all, it's purified. Then it's cooled and pressurized. And if you if you take a carbon dioxide, which is at normal atmospheric temperature and pressure as a gas, and you cool it and pressurize it enough, it will turn into what is called a supercritical fluid, which allows it to be to flow and be pumped relatively easily in a pipeline. The challenge, and this is what caused the accident in Mississippi, if there are contaminants in that supercritical fluid, they can cause pipeline failures. So you have to have a very pure CO2 stream that you inject into a pipeline and then you know, move from where it's generated to a storage site. And and you have to, you know, maintain maintain that or or you can create real risk for areas adjacent to the pipeline. It's not clear yet exactly what happened in Mississippi, or at least to my knowledge. Um, and but 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 there are risks, you know, as as with any kind transporting any kind of pressurized gas or fluid in a in a pipeline, that there are risks and and What's challenging about CO2 is, or, or maybe it's not challenging, it's, it's something to be managed, is that we're talking about a new industry in California. Historically, regulation of CO2 pipelines at the national level has been fairly light touch. And, and so we want to make sure that the pipelines we permit reflect the recent learnings from the accident, and, um, and they're done carefully and well. Uh, so that we avoid anything like that in California. And Michael, what's your sense of the state of California's ability to be the uh, overseer, uh, regulator of of what's done in Kern County or elsewhere in the state if there's going to be carbon storage? Well, I think the first thing to say is that this is going to be a joint effort between the federal government, EPA, and the state of California, that there are both federal and state permits that are required to actually do the whole thing soup to nuts, you know, from from capturing the CO2 to transporting it to injecting it into a, uh, the ground. Um, and I think that the California regulators and EPA Region 9, the part of EPA that oversees this permitting process for California, are really interested in doing this right and have invested significant resources in learning um, in and in the development of the permits that are starting to be issued to store carbon. So they they want to see this done right. 
that means that it's taking a little bit longer perhaps than some of the project proponents would like. But I think there is real value in making sure that any experimentation is done carefully and well, um, because you know one significant error could really put this industry back many years. We're talking, um, uh, I'm sorry, you find a point there. No, after you. Sorry. All right. Uh, Michael, no, that's right. Michael Wara, director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at, at Stanford University. Back to Joshua Yeager, environment and health reporter at NPR, member station KVPR in, in Kern County. Um, Joshua, the chips that, that are thought to be created by this carbon storage, would they be similar kinds of jobs, just technically what would be required of workers as is required of people working in oil fields currently? Well, it depends. I mean, the industry is is hopeful. This sort of burgeoning um, carbon capture industry is is hopeful that there can be a, a pipeline of sorts from uh, the oil industry workers to to these uh, kind of similar jobs. But it's it's a big open question right now um, because what we're finding in our reporting is that a lot of these projects don't necessarily create a ton of jobs. They're not big job creators. Um, this this uh, big carbon capture project we've been discussing in Kern County, for example, the the carbon terror vault, uh, there's about only five to 10 jobs are, are expected to be created um, out of this project. Um, now, now there's, you know, a whole slew of potential things that could come up uh, to create more jobs, um, blue hydrogen, uh, other sorts of kind of uh, renewable friendly technology that the county county hopes to um, kind of focus in 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 this uh, sort of remote area in the Kern County foothills where, where oil activity traditionally was clustered. Um, because from the county's perspective, I think it's it's kind of an existential issue. Um, if if this doesn't work out, if this carbon capture bet uh, doesn't doesn't pay off or fizzles out in a major way. I, I think it's it, it's not a good thing for for Kern County. You know they're, they're really uh, they're really scared in some Under, ways. Understandably. Yeah. Speaking of which, Joshua, you've uh, you've done this series. You're part of the series After Oil, California's Big Bet. KVPR's collaborated with Inside Climate News, the Investigative Editing Corps, and Report for America. I'm sure that many of our listeners would be interested in reading not just this, but other work that you're doing as part of this collaborative. Where's the best place for for our listeners to be able to see that work? Yeah, you, you can view it at kdpr.org um, or on insideclimatenews.com. We're, we're co-publishing uh, the the um, the stories together, uh, and it's they'll be rolling out over the next uh, month or so. Um, this first one was, you know, we kind of looked at, uh, uh, kind of laid the stakes out and, and, and set the scene. And this next story we'll have publishing uh, in the in early February. We'll, we'll focus more on the jobs uh, question that you just asked. So uh, we're very excited and thank you for having me. Yeah, Joshua, thanks. Fascinating. Joshua Yeager of KVPR, NPR member station. And our thanks to Stanford's Michael Wara for joining us as well on Air Talk. Coming up, we talk with one of the candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. He's Deputy DA Jonathan Hatami. He specializes in the prosecution of child abuse cases. We'll talk with him about his reasons for running for the top job in L.A. County's DA office. We'll be back in just one minute.
It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're spending approximately 15 minutes with each of the candidates for L.A. County District Attorney. At least we've invited all of them. Up to them whether they choose to come in. But we're so delighted that Deputy D.A. Jonathan Hatami is joining us. He has been a prosecutor since 2006. He's running um, against incumbent George Gascon, the D.A. who's seeking a second term. And there are a total of 12 candidates. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start first with the reason why you're running, just very generally. Um, why do you think that you are the person for this job, and what do you think specifically you would bring to it? So we have major public safety concerns here in Los Angeles. We have individuals who are afraid to go to the store, to go shopping. We have Angelinos who are afraid to wear watches or wear jewelry. We have Angelinos who are afraid to walk their children to school uh, or even go to the store or go to the beach. And I'm going to bring and prioritize public safety. I'm going to fight for my children. I'm raising my children here in Los Angeles. I'm going to fight for the safety of all children. I'm going to fight for the safety of members of my community, of my neighbors. Um, So many individuals in our community who every day are now seeing these smash-and-grab burglaries. Uh, They're seeing individuals involved in follow-home robberies. We have such an uptick in hate crimes here in Los Angeles. And many people are feeling scared. They're feeling afraid. We are seeing in the case of smash-and-grab robberies, we we have seen arrests being made. Similarly, with follow-home robberies, we're seeing crime overall down, though there are some categories where it's increased. And we have a DA in George Gascon who was elected to be a reformer, to to essentially not go the law and order uh, historic route that we've had in the county and to look at at, at different types of, uh, of, of uh, dealing with crime. So as, as you look at what voters have said they want, how do you think you would be able to satisfy that desire for reform in the office versus prosecute these cases in, in a different way? So I think reform is good. I think progress is good. Um, I think that we always have to look at the criminal justice system and figure out ways to make it better. But I don't think reform means just not prosecuting crime at all. I don't think reform means making people scared. I think looking at uh, our criminal justice system and the fact that, yes, there has been mass incarceration of people of color and people in lower socioeconomic areas, but we can't now punish the current victims to fix, fix societal past injustices. I think we need to fight for our victims and for for survivors and for surviving family members, many of who are people of color, especially violent crime. I think we need to stand up for those victims. I think for crimes, you need to prosecute those cases. I think people really want a district attorney who's going to fight for victims and survivors, prosecute crime, but also show empathy and have a heart and be fair and just. In, uh, there's are are there violent crimes that the DA's office isn't prosecuting now? So when he first started off as DA, he instituted a massive amount of, of policies. These were blanket policies. I can tell you one personally. I had a little boy named Anthony Avalos, a 10-year-old boy that was tortured and murdered by his mom and her boyfriend. And George Gascon ordered me not to allege the special circumstance of intentional murder by torture. Um, I refused to do it. But I could tell you that during the last first few two, three, four months, there were many gun violence charges that he didn't allow his prosecutors to charge. There was many parole hearings that he didn't allow his prosecutors to attend. 
There was many great bodily allegations of people breaking a child's arm or fracturing a child's rib that he didn't allow us to charge or allege. And so I would say yes. Uh, also, he didn't even allow us to charge hate crimes at the beginning. It was only about three weeks later that he changed on that as well. So I think a lot of these policies that he instituted have adversely affected the safety of our community. So uh, uh, D.A. Gascon, his his argument has been that the sentencing enhancements and special circumstances, that that is a factor in mass incarceration, and that uh, the longer sentences that come with all the enhancements don't necessarily make the public safer, but do build the population in prison. So how would you handle these kinds of enhancements or special circumstances prosecutions? So if you take a gun and kill a child or go into a school and kill numerous children, we're going to charge that. If you intentionally torture and murder a child, we're going to charge that case. If you commit a hate crime or a hate crime murder, we are going to charge that. And here's the thing. The public passed these laws. That's the will of the people. These laws have been passed the will of the people has been heard. The DA's job is to make sure that they make the community safe. And so if you're committing heinous crimes or crimes where there are allegations and enhancements, we should charge those allegations and enhancements and then work through the process, work through the system. There are times when we do get mitigation. There are times when you do see that we can help with rehabilitation. There are times where you do see that the defendant has gone through a lot of trauma. There are times where you do see that we can make a difference. Because overall, we do want to rehabilitate. That is the ultimate goal, is taking somebody and, and, and helping them and getting them back into society. But I don't believe that we just don't charge crime. We're talking with Jonathan Atami, deputy district attorney, specializes in child abuse prosecutions. He's been a deputy DA since 2006. He's running for Los Angeles County District Attorney. So would you, when it comes to enhancements, would you go back to charging those enhancements as Jackie Lacey did when she was DA as opposed to the current DA? So, yes, we are going to charge allegations and enhancements. If you use a gun and murder somebody, we're going to charge that. If you, if you commit a hate crime, we're going to charge that. If you commit uh, intentional torture and murder, we're going to charge that. If you commit the great bodily injury allegation, we are going to charge those type of cases and those type of allegations because that is what the law has dictated, and that is what the job of the district attorney is. But I do believe that if you really want to fix the system, you got to look at the system and look at how to help people before they get into the criminal justice system. Let's help with the foster care system. Let's help with education. Let's help with other areas. Let's help with people who are homeless or people who are addicted to drugs. Let's do that before they get into the system and they commit a heinous crime. Because once there is a heinous crime, we need to fight for the victims and make sure our public is safe. Let's let's talk about uh, the current policy of the DA where so-called quality-of-life misdemeanors are not prosecuted. Uh, and again, uh, the DA is saying that, you know, this, this essentially drives mass incarceration, gets people caught up in the system, and they don't end up getting themselves out, and that there are better ways of addressing, he says, uh, this kind of misdemeanor crime. So what would what would you do in the prosecutions of those kinds of crimes? So first off, misdemeanors don't incarcerate anybody in state prison because you can't go to state prison if you commit a misdemeanor. But I could tell you, me personally, I, as a teenager, as a 16-year-old, I committed a misdemeanor. Um, I was detained because I was driving without a license and I had alcohol in the car and I did get in trouble. And as a result of that, I joined the Army. 
and I spent seven years in the United States Army, and it turned my life around. So I don't believe we just don't prosecute misdemeanors. I think that if you're committing resisting arrest or disturbing the peace or public drunkenness or solicitation for prostitution or indecent exposure, our job as district attorney is not to make sure that people are allowed to commit crimes. Our job is to make sure that we're protecting the public and make sure we keep the quality of life good. This is why 37 cities voted no confidence in George Gascon, because he refused to charge and prosecute those misdemeanors. It doesn't mean we're going to send everybody to prison or jail, but what it means is if you commit these type of crimes, you are going to be held accountable and responsible for those crimes. We had an individual break 50 car windows in Westchester just recently. We're just not, not going to charge that. Um, you have to charge those cases. You have to make sure that the victim feels whole, and you have to let people know you are going to be accountable if you commit those crimes. I assume that case will be, that's going to be charged, though, right? I would the hope 50 so. windows. He, here's the issue that I think we have is, one, he started off George Gascon day one and gave a list of about 15 misdemeanors he said we weren't allowed to charge. He sort of gave the impression to the public that you weren't going to be held accountable and responsible for your crimes, and that's not good for a district attorney to do that. And so you do have the impression that, one, there's a lot of crimes that are not being charged. Two, you have the impression that people feel they can get away with any type of crime they want. Three, numerous people get arrested and released and arrested and released, and and people are getting frustrated about it. And things like indecent exposure, resisting arrest, criminal threats, we should charge those if they're actually happening and we can prove them beyond a reasonable doubt. We can't have a lawless society here in Los Angeles. We're talking with Jonathan Atami, his deputy district attorney candidate for L.A. County D.A. Want to talk about the prosecution of juveniles because uh, George Gascon is against charging juveniles as adults and in particularly heinous cases involving juveniles. Would you support adult prosecution? So juveniles who commit heinous crimes such as murders or multiple murders or rapes, uh, I think it should go before a committee and then it should go to a transfer hearing if we have the evidence and then present that to a judge. Uh, George Gascon at first when he took office was against that. He's kind of flip-flopped and it seems like now he's for it. But I'll give you an example. I had a 16-year-old who murdered his two-year-old. It was a tough, tough case. It was out of Pasadena. Um, initially, I filed that as a transfer, and I filed it way before George Gascon became DA. Transfer to adult Tra- court. Correct. Transfer to adult court. That's what we call it now. And we went through the process, and after about nine months, I withdrew the transfer motion, uh, and we ended up uh, dealing with that juvenile in juvenile court, and he admitted to the murder, and he's going to get out when he's 25. And so what that tells you is, yes, I'm for transfer hearings. I do believe that there are juveniles who commit heinous crimes, and some of them need to be transferred up to a court. But not uniformly. But not uniformly. And I believe at first you may have to file a transfer motion, but if you actually work the case, you may determine that it's in the best interest of the juvenile and of society to not transfer that juvenile. And that's the big difference between George Gascon and I. I actually have experience and learned experience, and he has none. Let's uh, talk about uh, police officer uh, prosecutions because uh, George Gascon's office has prosecuted 15 officers so far. In the previous two decades, only two officers were prosecuted. So this is a a remarkable difference. Uh, What would you do in the case of of, uh, prosecuting officers for alleged misconduct, particularly involving use of force? So I can tell you this is close to my heart because, one, my wife's a police officer. She's been a veteran of the sheriff's department for 16 years. Two, in 2010, 
an off-duty LAPD officer was drunk and ran over my mom. And she was seriously injured. And our office prosecuted that case uh, in 2010. And I believe I didn't get the justice I deserve or my mom because he got only one year in the county jail. And so I've seen it on both sides. So I could tell you this. I don't like what George Gascon is doing, particularly, one, because I think he's politicized prosecuting police. Two, he's lost many of these cases because I think he's placed prosecutors in JCID, which is the Justice System Integrity Division, who are uh, public defenders who don't have real experience and who have the bias that they don't really like police officers. And we should have good prosecutors in JCID. He also paid somebody $1.5 million to come into our office, and he's never been a prosecutor, to prosecute police cases. So I believe everybody should be held to the same standard of care, including police officers. We should not politicize those cases. We shouldn't file cases that we can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which George Gascon is doing right now. But we do need to make sure that the public realizes that if you're a police officer and you commit a crime, you'll be held to the same standard as everybody else. So the with predecessors of George Gascon, because you've been doing prosecution for, uh, well, since 06, do you think they got it right or do you think they were too reluctant to prosecute officers? I think they failed to inform the public of exactly what we were doing on these cases. You have to be transparent. You also have to lead and make decisions. And sometimes you have to make tough decisions. And so I'm going to tell you, as DA... Not only will I support my police officers, I will also hold them accountable and responsible if they commit crimes, because our system breaks down if we don't do that. Jonathan Atami, Deputy DA, candidate for Los Angeles County District Attorney, with us. Proposition 47 reduced a, a number of what have been felonies to misdemeanors, and uh, particularly for uh, property crimes, $950 and below, reduced those. Do you support Prop 47? Do you support any modifications of it? To what level do you think it's contributed to um, what we see in societal effects of the criminal justice system? So I could tell you I've met with a lot of businesses and a lot of business owners and a lot of people in the immigrant community. My father's an immigrant, own businesses. They rely on them. People are frustrated. They are really frustrated with these burglaries and they feel like people aren't being held accountable. I think the threshold of 950 should be brought down to 400. I think part of it is is a lot of times police officers don't actually deal with those cases because they feel like we're not going to do anything about them. And then many businesses don't report them because they feel like we're not going to do anything about them. And I think part of it has to do with that threshold. Number two, I think repeat offenders. We need to bring back petty theft with a prior. Uh, and that needs to be a That's wobbler. That's not being prosecuted now? No, and it needs to be a wobbler where it needs to be either you can charge it as a felony or charge it as a misdemeanor. And, you know, that got seriously affected and impacted by Prop 47. And then the last thing is this. We need to have our drug court back. Um, we had a good drug court where it was an 18-month program where you went through the program if you were addicted to drugs. And if you graduated from that program, not only did you get better and get back into society, your case was dismissed. We don't have that anymore. I don't believe in leaving people out addicted to drugs. I think it's inhumane. We need to promote and support recovery, not promote and support open-air drug markets. So I think that, for me, Prop 47 had some advantages, I think, when it came to the, the drug charges, but it had a lot of disadvantages. I want to give you just 30 seconds for a quick closing comment, maybe any, something we didn't raise, but making your case to L.A. County voters. So I think many viewers in Los Angeles know that I fought for 8-year-old little Gabriel Fernandez. I've also fought for 10-year-old little Anthony Avalos. And I am going to be a district attorney 
who brings that same passion to everybody here in Los Angeles and fight for all of you and make sure all of you are safe in your homes and safe in your schools and safe in your neighborhoods. I'd love your vote and I'd love your support. Thank you so much. Jonathan Natami, thank you very much for coming in and talking with us. We appreciate it. No, thank you so much. We've invited all 12 of the L.A. County District Attorney's candidates. They include Mr. Hatami, who's Deputy DA, who specializes, as he just referenced, child abuse cases, some of the worst. It's Air Talk on LAist, 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about the crime of uh, cactus theft and the whole underground market of trading in rare and even unavailable cacti. How does this whole thing work? Well, it's a little like The Orchid Thief, you know, that best-selling book. We'll talk about it when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. You might have heard the story back in 2022 of a South Korean man who was sentenced to a couple of years in federal prison for poaching more than 3,000 succulent plants from state parks in Northern California. Uh, it uh, helped to turn attention to what is, in fact, an international trade in stolen cacti and succulents. And joining us to talk about the work that he's done to better understand what's happening in these cases is Jared D. Margulis, author of The Cactus Hunters, Desire and Extinction in the Illicit Succulent Trade. Jared, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. It, um, I'm looking forward to chatting about it. Yeah, so let's, I mean, many of us are familiar with the best-selling book, The Orchid Thief, where there's this whole sort of cult following of particular types of orchids, and thieves will go to great lengths to to sell them uh, on the underground market. Um, is, is that similar to what's going on here with succulents? Yeah, I mean, on... On the one hand, yes, in the sense that what we're talking about is demand and desire for, um, you know, a particular kind of plant, um, whether it's because they're rare in the wild or because they're particularly beautiful or very hard to find. Um, and so there are a lot of themes that are very simil similar in the world of illegal orchid trading. Um, the a, a difference, I suppose, with cat talking about cacti and succulents is that um, we're talking about a really wide array of different kinds of species um, that also have different kinds of needs. So, you know, there's a big difference between a 
between poaching or stealing a saguaro cactus from the Sonoran Desert, um, as opposed to a cactus, you know, that's about the size of my thumb. But in terms of that question about human desire and what motivates people to want to collect these plants and sometimes go beyond the limits of the law to do so, then yeah, there's a lot of similarities with um, what we've seen with sort of the more popularized accounts of, of illegal orchid theft. And the people that are receiving the stolen cactus or succulents, are they looking at putting these into their own personal gardens? Yeah, so in especially in my book, I'm focusing on illegal trade for the ornamental collection community. And, and so um, I'm looking at plants that are moving and circulating around the world um, through acts of illegal trade for people who want them to keep them as ornamental plants. Um, importantly, what you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to in the book, and that's important for listeners to understand is what makes um, a plant illegal in the first place, because there's nothing illegal about a cactus per se. Um, it's about how they move through the world because there are international trade conventions that regulate the the um, the trade in in species that might be endangered in the world. And uh, and so this is this a cooperative between all all sorts of governments that that there is uniform identification of particular types at risk yeah so the so without getting too deep into the policy weeds the thing that that regulates that makes it possible to talk about illegal cactus trade in the first place or illegal orchid trade for that matter is something known as CITES or the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Uh, it's a it's a mouthful, but it's um, CITES for short. And this is a convention that's been around since 1975. And this is an international convention of which most countries in the world are party to. Um, and it's through CITES that that um, stakeholders get together and decide what kinds of species might be endangered. Um, or or threatened with extinction through um, their commercial trade. And so CITES helps to regulate that. Importantly, in the realm of cacti and succulents, a lot of those species are regulated, and some of those species are not allowed to be traded at all. And so, of course, once they start trading internationally, then it becomes illegal. And in many cases, are the ban on trade of, of these uh, types of cacti and succulents because they've lost their habitat is or or that they've been affected by climate change or what what are the reasons that have typically made them rare yeah so i mean one of the things i found really fascinating about this project is learning um so i'm a social scientist i'm not a botanist um was learning that you know cacti actually represent one of the most threatened taxonomic or family groups of plants or animals on the planet. Um, so um, one third of all cacti are threatened with some degree of endangerment of extinction. And so um, this is a really threatened family of plants. Um, and, and so, um, you know, in terms of what's threatening them, it's a combination of things like climate change, but also habitat degradation, urbanization, farmland development. But importantly, within the context of cacti and succulents, a lot of tr uh, uh, another thing that threatens them is illegal or over collection for the ornamental uh, for the ornamental collectors trade. So the collection itself has, in many cases, led to the shortage and in danger. We'll continue our conversation with Jared Margulis, who's author of The Cactus Hunter's Desire and Extinction in the Illicit Succulent Trade. He's assistant professor of geography at the University of Alabama. We'll come back with more in just one minute.
you have questions for our guest, you can call 866-893-5722, or you can email them to us, atcomments at laist.com. Please include your location and first name. We're talking with Jared Margulis, who's author of The Cactus Hunter's Desire and Extinction in the Illicit Succulent Trade. Here in California, what are some of the most desired but banned from trade cacti and succulents? It's a good question. You know, one of the things that I that that this research showed for me also is just how fickle and um, uh, fleeting some of these demands can be. Right. So you mentioned at the top of the show the example of the sort of sudden in emer- sudden emergence of the. Um, trade in Dudleya farinosa, for instance, um, in the illegal harvesting of Dudleya from the California coastline and how that ended up with some people in jail um, in California. Uh, you know, what's interesting about Dudleya farinosa is, you know, this is not a CITES uh, regulated um, plant. So what actually made that trade illegal was not breaking the CITES convention, which is often the case for cacti, but the the people who were perpetrating this were often lying on um, on the on the boxes that they were shipping out, what the what the plants were, um, and that they were taking them from public lands in California. So honestly, what got them in the biggest trouble was postal fraud more than anything else. Oh, interesting. Wow. You, you know, one of the things it, these things change over time. So you know, there's a number of agave species right now um, that have been getting um, people have started noticing getting harvested illegally out of California wildlands um, and ending up in international trade. Um, but, you know, next month it could be something different. So, it, you know, it's it's mobile and it's fluid and, and much like human desires, um, entirely uh, uh, fickle and uh, temporary. How challenging is it for people to to cultivate some of these rarer uh, cacti and succulents themselves? I mean, to create the kind of um, artificial environment in which the plants thrive. It's really one of the things that I found interesting in this research was how species specific or genus specific it can be, you know, so uh, again, the example of Dudleya farinosa, they're really not the easiest plants to grow um, in collection, you know, you're not going to have much luck growing one in a, on a, you know, in a pot on your windowsill. Uh, They have a lot of specific needs that are going to be tricky to keep alive, whereas others that end up in illegal trade are often being traded not because they're particularly hard to grow, but they might be so slow growing that people are impatient and want, you know, a big, beautiful plant that's going to put out a flower in a couple of years. And they so they don't want to wait the, you know, the the five or 10 years it's going to take from growing it from seed. So it really depends. And um, how big is this market estimated at internationally? Does anyone have good figures on that? No. And, you know, you know, I'm typically asked this question and I always encourage people to be skeptical when they see really clear um, figures put on any kind of illicit economy and trade. Because one of the things that we know about illegal economies is that they're not being regulated by normal um, legal regulatory mechanisms that are taxed. Right. And so it can be really tricky to put accurate estimates on the, the monetary value of these trades. And where are some of the hotspots? for this in the world. Of course, the Southwest is is big for succulents and cacti, but but other parts of the world. Yeah, so it's kind of about a question of overlap of where you find natural biodiversity hotspots, which would include places for cacti, especially like um, Peru or, or Chile and Brazil, but also, of course, central Mexico and, and really all of Mexico. 
And then with other succulents, like right now, there is just an absolutely huge demand for South African succulents. Um, they have the highest biodiversity of non-cacti succulents in the world in the, um, the succulent Karoo biome. And so you're seeing a huge amount of demand from those regions. But it's where that demand, that, that biodiversity overlaps, for instance, with issues like in South Africa, where um, we're seeing this sort of really um, bad overlap of issues of acute rural poverty overlapping with really high biodiversity of these species, leading towards a lot of illegal collection. But it can also be in countries that have a harder time regulating export controls, for instance. Um, you know, so the U.S. has a lot of biodiversity in a lot of these arid land and plants, but arguably has stronger customs enforcement than some other countries. So it's about kind of where those two two meet. Uh, and is is much of what is desired plants that you would say are are typically considered to be beautiful? Is is the aesthetic what's the central drive here? Yeah, so I think it can be a combination of different things. And of course, all collectors are their own person and have their own proclivities. But it's oftentimes some combination for a lot of collectors of, of aesthetic qualities. Now, what I think of as beautiful and what you think of as beautiful can be two different things. But it can be about aesthetics. Oftentimes for cacti and succulents, it has a lot to do with the flower, which oftentimes people don't think about with cacti, but many cacti have absolutely stunning flowers. But it can also deal with things like natural rarity. Some species in the world are simply sort of rare by their nature, and that oftentimes has the effect of making them sort of seen as more valuable within collector communities. Um, and of course, there's always the case where certain plants that are harder to come by become more desirable simply because they produce that sort of intensified effect of um, of withholding uh, satisfaction. Yeah, status, a status uh, a symbol. Yeah. Uh, the Cactus Hunters Desire and Extinction in the Illicit Succulent Trade. Jared Margulis joins us to talk about his book. Jane in Los Angeles emailed, I had a row of large agaves at the front of my property. One morning I came out, found that one of them had been dug up, just one out of the whole row. Um, they were very sharp, so maybe the thieves gave up after the first one. These are certainly not rare, but I wonder about the value of the very large ones have on the resale market. Um, and you you were talking about how a lot of times with slower growing cacti and succulents, people are looking, you know, they want to get the big ones so they don't have to throw it from, from the smaller size. How much crossover is there between the illicit cacti and succulent trade from public lands versus, you know, stealing from other residents like out of this woman's front yard? You know, this is I, this is admittedly anecdotal because that that you know most of my book is really about international trade, not sort of domestic affairs. But um, especially anecdotally, during starting in the pandemic, I started hearing from a lot of friends in the LA area about issues of ornamental succulents in their front yards getting thefted in the middle of the night. Um, and so maybe there's a bit of a a new project on the horizons um, on sort of a, a front yard. Yeah. Um, thievery. Um, and, and, but, you know, the, the issue of um, of size is a real one because human um, impatience knows no bounds. And so, you know, one of the things I write in the book is that in many ways, succulent life has um, um, its lootability has evolved. And by lootability, I simply mean these particular traits that might make them um, both more desirous as kind of collectible objects, um, even though they're living plants. Um, but also that makes their lootability more possible, right? And so one of the things about these older plants is that even if they're quite old, um, succulents have evolved to typically not have terribly deep root systems. 
And so even a really large plant can oftentimes be kind of heaved out of the ground quite easily compared to say, you know, a tree of a similar age. And so there are certain evolutionary traits about these plants that have also made them, you know, also more possible to survive international transport in a cardboard box for three weeks that say an orchid would not necessarily be able to survive. Yeah, you anticipated my next question. We're almost out of time. We have like 30 seconds, but how they logistically move these plants internationally, the succulents and cacti, Mm. without damaging them. They must have pretty elaborate packing methods. Well, you know, it's more rudimentary than you probably think, but the sad reality is a lot of the plants likely will also die. Um, So as as robust and tough as we oftentimes think of these plants, and they do have the capacity, you know, to live without water, that's why they're succulents. And so they will, you know, a lot of them will make it, but a lot of them also might be really stressed by that by that transit and end up um, end up dying, you know, months later. Jared D. Margulis, author of The Cactus Hunter's Desire and Extinction in the Illicit Succulent Trade. He's a professor at the University of Alabama. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Just fascinating what you describe here. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's Air Talk on LA, at 89.3. Coming up next, it's NBR's Here and Now. They're going to be previewing tomorrow's New Hampshire primary. And of course, we'll have special coverage of that tomorrow night right here on LAS 89.3. Have a great rest of your day, and I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9, right after Morning Edition. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.